Welcome to episode 23 of Jimmy D and Mr. B. I am Jimmy D. And I am Mr. B. And we're going to talk about some history. And we're coming at you from a revolutionary standpoint this time around, Jimmy. I'm very excited. Our first, very first uh, uh, Revs episode. And um, I think there'll be a few more to come after this, Clint. Yeah, we might start a little series or something um, where we look at some of the biggest revolutions going on around the world. Um, we're clearly not working chronologically because we're starting in the 20th century and we're going to be looking at um, China today, particularly um, the great leap forward that Mao took in China. It's a massive topic and one that I love as like someone who majored or minored in 20th century history at uni. I love this area. Yeah, it's a pretty interesting area and a pretty a pretty interesting take as well. We'll be looking at Mao, obviously, and what he did. And he's one of the more interesting world leaders that was around at that time. And um, he did things his own way. Yeah, and he has a pretty complicated legacy as a result of it. And um, obviously in the news at the moment, like uh, the Chinese Communist Party is a big deal. And something that's, you know, coming up in the news a lot. And Mao was like the guy that got them into power and sort of, um, you know, set many of the standards that they sort of follow today for better and for worse, I would say. Um, But yeah, did you know a lot about Mao coming into this, Jimmy? Um, I knew a bit about Mao. I probably, he probably wasn't someone I'd spent a lot of time reading about, but I do know his general story and kind of what he stood for, but this will be a really good, uh, way to learn more about him and to show and to tell other people about him because i don't know how much i don't know how common he is in what people learn in schools so much because we don't really get to that high level but um yeah it's going to be a really interesting take on mao and what he did for the chinese people yeah like and he has probably one of the least mainstream genocides of the 20th century as well so there's going to be a lot of um big changes some big ideologies that we talk about in here. Um, And yeah, like you said, it's not really taught that much in school until you go up to those higher levels. I didn't really hear about um, China's role in the 20th century until I got to uni. And apparently, according to a bit of research, only 21% of Australian millennials were familiar with Mao Zedong in 2019. So like you said, it's one that, not a lot of us know about and if we do it might be pretty surface level so i really hope people give this a full listen and like it's a pretty fascinating topic yeah like i said um didn't know a lot but really knew most about him through films and through things like that um and then obviously when uh mal's last dancer came out that piqued a little bit of interest as well a quite a good movie but also kind of on the low level skimmed over what was going on at that time without really going into it too deeply. Yeah. So let's set the stage a little bit um, because we're kind of going to go over pretty quickly the first half of the 20th century in um, China, but a lot was happening in this time. And like there's some future topics here, particularly like the opium wars that happened in the late 19th century, which was just fascinating when I read about. Um, but 
the 20th century was really a time of massive change and conflict in China. So at the start of the century, the, uh, the Jing dynasty was in power and they really had like a feudal style monarchy. So, you know, similar to what we talked about in the feudal Japan, our very first episode, um, that were overthrown in 1912 after years of conflict. And China became the Republic of China um, following a bit of a revolution early on um, with many regions at that stage being seen over by different um, sort of warlords. Um, as is the case, though, Jimmy, with many revolutions, the leaders weren't doing a good job and the rest of that sort of first half of the century remained a pretty, um, I would say, uh, turbulent period. Yeah, well, I mean, that's pretty late to come out of a feudal system during, like, the 20th century. Like, even Japan, like, it was still a feudal system for a long time, but it did adapt in certain ways as well. I feel like with China, that's a very late stage to come out of a feudal system when that's, I mean, that's basically just pre-World War One. So there's a lot of stuff going on in the world at this time, and you're just starting now to kind of change your style of uh, government at a pretty late stage. So you can imagine why a lot of people were against it or a lot of people really wanted it because they'd been stuck in like almost like um, uh, a time loop for quite a long period of time. Yeah, and we'll see um, through Mao's story that a lot of this revolution was sort of born through education, which was probably pretty limited um, in China. But we'll talk about that. Um, the following decades would see civil wars, foreign invasions, um, numerous rebellions, so we'll follow the story of Mao Zedong through this period and beyond. Um, but some really interesting stuff happened here that is definitely worth revisiting. So if this piques your interest, have a bit of a look into um, early, well, not, not even early, like you said, <laughs> um, early 20th century China. Um, but yeah, let's get into Mao's early years. So there's so much to cover in this topic. Um so we will breeze through his early years to when Mao gets into power, but he was born in 1893 to a moderately wealthy farming family, which afforded him a pretty decent education. Mao was pretty rebellious though, when it came to his education at the time, they would teach pretty classical Chinese texts in schools that were built around like Confucius morals. Like when I'm reading this, I'm thinking, oh, this is why the feudal system stayed in place for so long. Like people weren't really inspired to move out of their sort of status areas, Jimmy. Exactly. Yeah. I think especially if you are one of the, the wealthier families, even if you owned your own land, that's a huge reason to want to stay in the system you are. So, and as we know, the, the people who are the richest tend to rule. And unfortunately, the people who want to change are going to be the are going to be the people who are the peasants and the poorer people who want to change the way that they're living. So, yeah, you can see why it took so long for it to move from a feudal system to what it um, ended up being. Yeah. Um, following primary school, um, Mao was actually arranged to be married at 13 uh, to a 17 year old uh, with some nice farmland in her family. Um, the parents were obviously wealthy farmers of Mao, so he, um, they were pretty ambitious. Mao hated this idea and ended up ditching his uh, estranged wife who was left in disgrace and sort of passed away shortly afterwards. And Mao would become a big critic of, uh, made, of arranged marriages moving forward. As you can imagine, if you're a 13-year-old that your family's trying to... Um, 17 is like relatively a woman at this stage. 
I mean, I don't know many 13, 14 year old boys that would turn down being in a relationship with a 17 year old, but <laughs> clearly China was a different time. Um, and it wasn't yeah. seen as, but yeah, look, it's, I mean, it's really interesting to see it from that position as well. Like usually it's the, the, from the point of view of the woman being in a, in a range and in an arranged marriage and they want to get out. It's quite different to see it from the other point of view. Um, and it's really interesting that he was against that. I mean, it's, it's, it's quite rare. You would see that type of um, thought process in, in a young man so early that that was something he really stood for. Yeah, so I think technically he was married, but he never recognized it and he never said, yeah, he never admitted or, you know, accepted that he was married at that yeah. age. Yeah. Um, while working on the family farm, sort of following primary school, Mao was a pretty avid reader and he would, you know, very early on be focusing on political ideologies um, as well as being inspired by military heroics. So he would read about like these great nationalists like, George Washington and Napoleon Bonaparte, who um, would inspire, you know, probably a lot of what he did later in life. Um, in 1911, Mao moved to uh, Changsha, which where he continued his education. In this city, revolutionary sentiment was very strong. This is 1911. So we said that the monarchy was overthrown in 1912. So, you know, it was bubbling at the surface at that point. And as a 16 year old, um, Mao was swept right into that and joined a rebel group at 16. Um, apparently he was in the rebel army, but he never actually fought. Um, but I'm guessing that was due to his age or something, Jimmy. Yeah, look, I, I would imagine so. But again, we're already seeing um, a very young man who really has clearly strong ideals and he really wants to live a certain way. He's not about going the 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 way of everyone else he's not just happy with being who he is he wants to be more and you can see that really early on as even as a young man yeah so this group they you know had a half successful rebellion where about half of china um went with them and about and the northern part of china remained loyal to the emperor so to avoid civil war um they kind of it kind of fizzed out a little bit. But following that attempt, um, Mao would leave the army after about six months and commence a period of further education and exploring his ideologies. So this is a part that I'm going to move over pretty quickly. Over the coming years, Mao would really just continue his intellectual pursuits. He was studying, I think at one stage, wanting to become an educator himself, um, became involved in a lot of different student groups to where I think he was like secretary and leader at different points um he would write for like these new youth sort of rebel newspapers that were going around at that point in time one um thing that i saw was that he was really into like studying different like um theorists so one being um you know studying the theory of consequentialism which is like the end justifies the means and when i saw that i thought oh he bought into this because um spoiler alert he really thought some ends justified means as his life went on did he get it as a tattoo across his chest though maybe no maybe not ned kelly style i think um but he did have a massive quotes is going to be a big thing with Mao that we'll yep. talk about later he loved the quote um in 1918 and this was you know this was formative imagine if he didn't um he discovered marxism and was inspired by it so jimmy we're going to be talking about marxism probably a lot over the next 
you know, few episodes, I would say. Um, so do you want to do a bit of a Marxism um, for dummies sort of? Yeah. Um, yeah. So I'll make it, I'll keep it pretty simple and we'll probably go over Marxism a little bit more in other episodes, but essentially Marxism is an economic theory where basically society has no class system so there's no class system and every person within that society works for, for the for the common good and therefore that should eliminate the class struggle so essentially you're all working for one purpose you're all working together no one really owns the, the, there's no privately owned companies and things like that so this is a really about everyone buying into one way of life and that theoretically should be a really great way to live Unfortunately, though, being humans, we do tend to be greedy and we want things. Unfortunately, Marxism hasn't really taken off properly in any real way. Um, not necessarily, I think, because it's 100% wrong, but because I don't think people can adapt to that necessarily in such a short space of time. But yeah, that's, that's, that's essentially what Marxism is. Yeah, and Marxism's always kind of like looked good on paper, right? And yeah. then in um, practice has always ended in um, just absolute tragedy and disaster and usually ends up becoming, you know, a power-hungry fascist dictator on the other end of it or something like that. Exactly. So, um, you know, great. Well, not great. I mean, there's, in theory, there's some, there's some upside to it, but um, has never been really done particularly well. And it's, you know... They're, they're terms that get thrown around a lot these days. Like I think um, our, our newspapers were calling our, our premier, you know, a Marxist essentially yeah. for getting people to wear masks to stop a pandemic spreading and things like that. Yeah. Not, not really what Marxism is, but that's cool. Yeah. Cool. Cool. Um, so I guess that's why we need to just, just say it in case you get all um, of your opinions from the Herald Sun. Um <laughs> So we'll skip forward to 1921 and we're going to look at the formation of the Chinese Communist Party. Um, it was established based on Marxist teachings um, in Shanghai and Mao established the Changsha branch of the Chinese Communist Party or CCP. Around this time, he also married the daughter of his ethics professor and he sort of steadily gained momentum and um, as the um, CCP grew, as did Mao's influence within it. It was in 1924 when, um, you know, I saw this part as a really big change for Mao. He visited his native village, so where his family farm was um, in Shaoshan, where, which was much more working class, um, full of farmers and peasants. The peasants here were really restless and unhappy with the current rulers. So essentially at this stage, it was kind of like warlords overseeing regions that have been sort of broken up after the fall of the monarchy. Um, and Mao like sort of saw opportunity here. Previously, he'd been looking at the establishment of communism really from an intellectual perspective. So like, you know, working at university, studying at university, but it was when he went back here and saw the peasants in this state of unrest where he really realised the power of inciting the peasantry into revolting. And this would be what he would build his system on, Jimmy. 
Yeah, which is pretty interesting. So he's gone at it from one way, obviously thinking that he needs to do it like through university and through education. But being an educated man, he can influence. He can he can tell people there is a better way. And if people are already upset, it's going to be a lot easier to change their minds than the minds of people who are pretty well educated, you would think. So a pretty smart uh, white way of doing it. Obviously, the peasants didn't really know what they were in for, though, I don't think, Clint. Yeah, absolutely. They came off second best here, but Mao, yeah, absolutely saw, um, you know, rebel rousing peasants as better than educating, um, you know, smart people and stuff like that. Um, The best way I heard this described in my research was encircling the cities from the countryside. And this is kind of what would, um, he would would sort of try to incite. So over the coming coming years, Mao would rise to be the leader of the um, Communist Party of China and guide a revolution. And around 20 years of civil and foreign wars were sort of happening through this time, which would see um, the Communist Party defeat the Nationalist Party and change the face of China. The Nationalists would flee uh, um, from China and start new government in Taiwan. And really at this stage, the Communists were in, well, to stay as they still are today, Jimmy. Yeah, that's really interesting. I didn't actually know that the people who were originally in government kind of fled to Taiwan. So that's really interesting. And maybe a reason why there is still conflict between China and Taiwan, because China really see that as people who kind of fled and maybe did them the dirty. So um, that's really interesting. I'd like to look into that more, I think. But uh, yeah, yeah. I thought thought the same thing when I read it, like ongoing tension makes sense now. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think now we're getting into the really uh, intense part of the podcast where we really learn that Mao will really pretty much do anything to uh, succeed and stay in power. Yeah. So I called um, that sort of jump a, a great leap forward in the story, just in a little cheeky way there. But basically, we're going to move to um, Mao officially becoming the chairman of the People's Republic of China in December of 1949. So this is where he became essentially the the big boss, the leader of China. And um, they went to work instilling communism in China. Communism was pretty new to China. Not everyone was on board. So if you're having the class systems removed, people that don't have any status at this stage, they're probably stoked because they're going to be on a similar footing to, um, you know, their old landlords, their old rulers. Um, the rich and the landlords would be pissed though, Jimmy. Yeah. Now, if someone said to me, look, you've been living this way for like the past several hundred thousand years, pretty much. Um, we're going to take your way of living away. We're going to take away your land. We're going to take away your income. I'd be pretty annoyed as well. Um, unfortunately, they didn't really have that much of a choice. And Mao was used some pretty, let's say, forceful uh, tactics. Yeah, for sure. So landowners, owners, um, richer peasants and others who ruled over peasant workforces um, were basically sort of, many of them were beaten um, to death and killed by communists um, as land reforms were put into place. And land was sort of divided among the peasants to work. Um, Mao also recognized the power of revolutionary groups. Um, Well, he was part of a revolutionary group. So I think what Mao thought is, I need to stop there from being another Mao so that I can stay in power. So not only did he 
shift his, um, you know, focus on getting those grumpy landlords um, under wraps, but he also went to work in suppressing any future chance that there'd be a counter-revolutionary against him, Jimmy. Yeah, I mean, and who knows, maybe that might have been an even better idea than, than Marxism. We'll never know because he basically destroyed them. Um, yeah, so he, he's really in the position now where he's securing power and he's really he's he wants to put a foothold on China and he really wants to like announce to the world that he's here and that China is now under the control of the CCP and it's and that's really how it's gonna be for a long time. Yeah. So through land reforms and suppressing future revolutions, Mao's body count started to pile up really quickly in his first two years of power. Um, Policies dictated that at least one landlord, usually a lot more than this, were publicly executed in every village, send a bit of a message. Um, And between 1950 and 1952, an estimated two to 5 million people were killed during these reforms. And an additional sort of 1 to 6 million were sent to um, reform labour camps, which were essentially prison farms where most sort of perished um, during work. Um, Mao was also personally involved in setting and exceeding these quotas. So while he wasn't going around, um, you know, doing all the killing himself, that was his party's job, He definitely defended the killings as necessary in order to establish power, Jimmy. Yeah, he really paid attention to what uh, Stalin and Hitler did during World War II. He's like, (sighs) okay, I see what's going on here. And then he kind of like made it super efficient. Yeah. Um, And we're going to see like, when I was saying two to five million and one to six million, like these ranges are huge, but there's reasons for that, isn't there? Yeah, look, I mean, that's, um, look, you, you, I think, I don't think they would have been keeping uh, accurate numbers of uh, the people they were murdering. Um, and similar to Stalin during World War II, we don't really know how many people he had killed. Like, it could have been six, it could have been up to 40 million. So, again, similar with Mao, we don't really know the damage that he did because we're relying on the information provided by him, essentially. Yeah, and we know the Communist Party are great at sharing information with the Western world. Um, Mao's focus then shifted to reforming urban areas, and he introduced, um, and this was the first time I heard about this in my research, the three anti or uh, five anti campaign was launched. Um, The campaign sought to target capitalists within China by placing an emphasis, and this is where the antis came in, on anti-bribery, anti-theft of state property, anti-tax evasion, anti-cheating, and anti-stealing. So he basically mobilized urban workers as like spies and snitches where people were basically constantly getting dobbed in for disobeying one of these antis, Jimmy. Yeah, and you can really see how this would take off in the sense that Kind of like with uh, the Salem trials, if you just didn't like someone, you basically just said that they did one of these anti things and then the next minute they're dead. So you can see how this really would have, like, especially amongst like the working class, if they didn't like some guy who was making money still, they just dob him in and he's gone. Yeah. They didn't necessarily in the cities do the public killing. They would publicly humiliate them, send them to labor camps, and in most cases would kind of like 
force them to kill themselves or like force suicide upon them, which became so common in Shanghai. And this was chilling to read that people avoided walking on footpaths near skyscrapers um, because at this time there was a legitimate fear. So many people were jumping off them that somebody would land on them um, as a result of these reforms. Jumping. And I use inverted commas for that because I feel like it was more of a push than a jump. We'll call it motivated jumping. Motivated jumping. Uh, It sounds like a gym exercise, but so much more terrifying. Ah, so much more terrifying. And you don't want them landing on you. Um, But yeah, so at this stage, he cleaned up the rural areas. He cleaned up the cities. People feared him. Mao was in charge. And by the end of 1952, all political parties in China were banned except for the... Um, Chinese Communist Party. Sounds real similar to another bloke that was around a few years earlier, Clint. Oh, he learned some lessons from him for sure. So with complete power, Mao launched the Communist uh, Party of China's first five-year plan, which ran from 1953 to 1958. Essentially, he aimed to end Chinese dependence on agriculture. So farming was basically how they made all their money at that point beforehand but he wanted to work them towards becoming a global economic power which was the motivation for so much that he did um, over the next couple of decades Um, he recognized that industrialization was the key to moving forward um, and basically all the policies in this five-year plan were to um, move china from an agriculturally dependent nation to an industrial mover and shaker Um, It was mixed in its success. Um, A lot of critics started popping up, even within the party. Um, As you would expect, um, Mao um, didn't take this like overly well. He actually initially invited people to offer advice and constructive criticism. Um, This was, I think, more likely his way of rounding up all of his critics into an easy-to-find place, Jimmy. Yeah, if if Mao asked me my opinion, I would have lied and said he was the best thing since sliced bread because there's no way in hell this guy's taken any criticism on the way he does things lightly. Yeah, he ended up um, rounding up about half a million of these critics up and um, putting them into forced labour camps. So... <laughs> Mao had removed the capitalism from the urban centers, removed all the landlords, and now he'd removed all the people that dare question his authority. He is not Don't a mess with Mao. No, he's 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 no fool, but at the same time, he's probably getting rid of everyone who can help him at the same time and actually probably give him honest and real advice that he could use later down the track, but clearly he's not interested in other people's opinions. Yeah, that perfectly moves us into the second five-year plan after the first. Um, This is the Great Leap Forward section of the podcast, and this is what Mao will be most remembered for in history, Um, and it is one of the most harmful and cruel things that happened in the 20th century. And yes, Jimmy, I've heard of the Holocaust. It is on that level. On Is it worse or similar to? I'm never going to say that somebody's suffering is worse than another, Jimmy, and don't bait me into that. Um, but but it is, it's, they're both um, incredibly impactful genocides. Um, and China was, was, was hugely impacted 
by would, the great leap forward. Would you say the term same, same, but different applies to this situation? Sure. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm going to move on through that. The great leap forward. Um, it was born from Mao's impatience. So from the first five-year plan, his aims for industrial and manufacturing growth were not really met. So he needed to do it faster. In his words, more, faster, better, cheaper. And this was what motivated him to start the Great Leap Forward. It had two objectives and was implemented in 1958. The first was to create an industrialized economy in order to catch up with the West. And the second was to transform China into into a collectivized society where socialist principles, so Marxist principles, defined work, production, and even people's lives. Again, Jimmy, sounds okay on paper. Yeah, look, it's interesting because you want it to be so much like the West, but the West was this uh, capitalist society, yet he wanted to be similar to them in so many ways. So interesting to note that, I think, that he he was going with this Marxist belief system, but wanted to be similar to the West. And there's only one way to be similar to the West, and that's do things the same way. And it also old fashioned seemed- capitalism. Exactly right. Like I'm not saying he that it's 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 just a note to say that it's interesting that that's what his goal was to be like the West, but go about it in a completely different way. And I think his his obviously he was more about uh, quantity rather than uh, the uh, uh, quality of things. And we'll see that that doesn't really work out for him soon. Yeah, so during the Great Leap Forward, um, farming was sort of organised into people's communes. So um, I think earlier in Mao's reign, there were already communes around the place that were maybe um, like 30 to 50 families who worked together, you know, on maybe like grain production or something like that. And they would like tally it all up, they'd divide it amongst themselves, give some to the state, all good. Um he ended up making these communes massive and combining like up to thousands of families into these commune groups. Um, privately owned farms were forbidden and the agricultural economy was actually centrally planned. So things like production quotas, how much the communes had to make was all under the control of the CCP. Um, and the state would basically take everything they grew and distribute it how they wanted to, Jimmy. Sounds like a horrible plan. Yeah. Um, um, unfortunately, like, and we'll get into why it's horrible just really quickly. Unfortunately, the move, like, actually didn't increase output. And this is why the Great Leap Forward didn't work. The officials that were reporting to the Chinese Communist Party about how um, much grain these communes had grown they didn't want to tell the, Mao the actual figures because what was Mao going to do to them? Send them to, you know, more camps, reform camps. Yeah. So they would often exaggerate the output figures. This meant that the amount of food that the government took was too high and the peasants were left with insuff- insufficient foods, which became the story of the Great Leap Forward, Jimmy. Yeah. Sounds like a horrible situation. These people who are working on these 
farms with thousands of others so it's probably super crowded and everyone's trying to make food for themselves as well it's basic it's it sounds like it's gone back to like the middle ages where like these plots of land were run by the lord and then all these people were basically just making food for the lord and the lord of the manor basically and they got very few very little food for themselves and clearly um it it, it just was horrible for these people because they ended up dying because they had no food yeah, um, we'll get into that. The people of urban areas in China, they were given food stamps each month. So they got their food allocation. But the people in the rural areas, they were expected to grow their own crops on top of what they had to give to the government or give to the state. So let's say the state says, you need to give us five bags of rice. Like that doesn't matter if you only grow five bags of rice you have to give all of those to the government exactly so there's no arguing there so you don't have any to feed yourself and your family and that's why this sort of fell apart um the death count in rural parts of china surpassed the deaths in urban centers through this time um and on top of this the government of china because they were having the amounts sort of lied to them about they were also exporting food to other countries. So some of these bags of rice they were exporting overseas while their country's um, citizens were starving. And the death toll was massive, Jimmy. Do you want to go into that? Yeah, so basically you've got an accumulation of all these horrible things happening and there's been lies told about how much food. People are in famine and that's led to around 40 to 65 million people dying. Um and that's just basically from starvation, Clint. This is this this isn't like they're being rounded up and shot. This is they're literally starving to death because they've given all their food away to be sent overseas or to given to people in the main the the, the, the main towns or cities. So it's pretty horrific. Yeah, some villages reported losing over fifty percent of their population. So over half the population of certain villages starved to death. Um, the famine was a direct cause of probably more than 30 million of those deaths. Again, these numbers are all over the place because, you know, data is not that good at that time. Um, furthermore, you know, a lot of these were children that were malnourished and even the ones that did survive this um, often died shortly after as a result of, you know, various diseases that are attributed to malnutrition. Yeah, it's pretty horrific to think that so many of those, so many of the of those people dying, it could have just not happened if Mao had stopped and thought about what he was actually doing. And if he wasn't so terrifying, maybe these guys wouldn't have lied to him about how much food was really being produced. And therefore these these people may not have died. So it's Mao, I mean, Mao didn't physically go out and kill them, but indirectly through his yeah, really, his policies his, did. His, 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 his policies did. And yeah, yeah and I, I don't think that's going to be something that would people would just uh, not take. That, that's, that, that would have haunted these people for uh, generations. Yeah. Let's look at one of Mao's other great ambitions during uh, the Great Leap Forward. And that was doubling the steel production of China. So as we talked about, it wasn't just about agriculture. It was about um, industry as well. Steel targets through this period were, like I said, doubled basically in a year. Um, and they had to produce 10.7 million tons 
of steel. And again, he turned to the workers. Every family, every urban worker, and every peasant would be mobilized in the quest for steel production. And this um, gave birth to the backyard furnaces, which were a big part of the Great Leap Forward. These were basically just fires in the backyard used to smelt down um, any scrap iron or metal that could be found and used to export. And these were just, this was anything the family could find lying around. So old farming tools, cooking utensils, woks, um, anything at this stage. And, you know, this was for the state. This was for China to make this great leap forward, Jimmy. Yeah, I can't imagine that the quality of steel being produced would have been that great if people are using knives and forks and rusty shovels and things like that. I just can't imagine that the quality being exported and used was to a, to a high level. Yeah, I imagine there's a little bit of skill in the trade of metal making as well. Like, I don't know. I don't know how to do it. I'm sure it, they many of them didn't either. Yeah, they're just like chucking their knives and forks into a fire and hoping it works out, I think, at this stage. Yeah, and historians described how the backyard furnaces triggered by Mao's steel fever transformed the landscape of China. Um, Apparently, uh, you know, you'd have smoke and flames filling the airs and villages growing red because they're all sort of got these backyard furnaces going. And not only did Mao have um, a massive impact on human life there, but also... Um, absolute environmental destruction at this stage to keep all these furnaces burning. So the high demand of wood as fuel um, would increase deforestation and leave many of these landscapes and regions just completely unrecognizable. Yeah, and I think you think of parts of China, you think of the beautiful forests they've got and um, the, the landscape, and just to think that so much of that was just... Uh, all taken away by the fact that of the, by the fact that they they needed the, the all the all the resources to make steel so pretty horrific and obviously as we know trees are fairly essential to life on this planet yeah um look let's as as you alluded to the quality of steel that they were making was absolute garbage as well and the backyard furnace policy was abandoned as a result of this Um, The steel that was produced by peasants, which was very low grade, mostly unusable, um, a lot of this just got taken to secret dumps and um, people got rid of it. So I assume they were telling Mao, yeah, the villagers are doing a great job. Look at them all burning their furnaces. And um, most of it just got dumped. So all this environmental destruction for, for nothing, really. Yeah, and I think we've seen two of his five-year plans absolutely fail um, completely, not only in terms of human life, but just the fact that the farming stuff didn't work, the steel stuff was an utter, 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 utter failure. So, um, yeah, at the moment, he hasn't done a great job, Clint. No. Um, the extent of Mao's knowledge of the severity of this situation has been disputed. Um, Mao's physician who, and like, we're not going to get great information from the CCP. So a lot of the stories of Mao were just chose like told by like snitches that knew him essentially. So we've got to take a lot of this for what it was. Um, but he believed that Mao had been pretty much completely unaware of the extent of the famine that was going on at the time. 
um, partly due to a reluctance of people to criticize his policies. So people were probably coming up to Mao and going, yeah, no, it's going great. So much rice. Everyone's happy. People love you, Mao. Um, yeah, like, otherwise, what do they do? Get sent to the colonies, Jimmy. Exactly right. Like, I mean, to be honest, it actually sounds believable because if no one has told him that 40 million people died out in, like, the country areas, he's not out there visiting. He's not going out seeing this. He's literally relying on what people are telling him. So if no one told him, it makes sense, theoretically, that he wouldn't know. I mean... Have you seen how many people are in China? How can you check on them all? Exactly right. He's like, oh, so yeah, I mean... I think, look, I think he should have known based on the fact that his policies were absolute uh, garbage and that they didn't, and he had to stop both of them, have a think about what might be happening there. But yeah, I mean, it stands to reason that if no one told him, but that's not really an excuse though. You should know. No, not really. Apparently upon learning of the extent of this starvation, this gave me a chuckle, Mao vowed to stop eating meat, um, an action followed by his staff. So if you see a vegetarian, Jimmy, or someone like myself that doesn't enjoy the flesh of animals, um, you got to wonder what I'm hiding in my past. That's, uh, I knew it. I always knew yeah. there was something wrong with vegetarians, and now it's been, it's been the the lid has been lifted. You're all yeah. murderers. They've committed possible unknowing genocide. Yeah, um, I knew it. So many other awful stories came out of this period, like. Many hungry people in these situations. So we're talking about like the people that are in the famine-stricken villages. Um, as you would understand, some people would try to like nick food and stuff like that. So not just the starvation killed people, but a lot of people were actually killed by um, like CCP, um, you know, like overseers in the village. Um, some stories that came out of it that really shocked me um, of kids particularly that were killed in cruel and unusual ways to discourage others from stealing food just like horrified me. There were children that were said to have their hands tied and thrown in rivers, had parts of their bodies cut off. Um, And like, this is them setting an example, like don't you dare try to steal any food. Um, And the worst one I heard was parents who were forced to bury their children alive at this point, Jimmy. Um, Horrific scenes. This sounds like a sick combination of Game of Thrones and The Handmaid's Tale. This is like the most, it's so unbelievable that you don't even think that someone is capable of this, but unfortunately people are capable of horrible things. And sadly these things happen. And I think it's important that we know about them so that we can try to stop these things from happening in the future. But yeah, truly, truly horrible. Yeah. Um, the number of deaths by starvation during the Great Leap Forward, like we said, it's also deeply controversial. Um, until the mid-1980s, so we're getting to be like two to three decades later, um, that's the first time that official census figures were actually published from this time frame by the um, Chinese government. Um, Little was known until the 80s of the scale of this disaster in the Chinese countryside. Um, So in the Western world, people didn't really know that this was going on at the time. Um, So many actually in the Western world saw the Great Leap Forward as a success. Yeah, that's that's weird to think that no one knew about it. I mean, you can understand that people within China maybe didn't because I'm guessing they didn't have 
great radios or phone systems going on back then, but I find it hard to believe that people thought that the Great Leap Forward was actually a success when, I mean, look, it's hard to tell. I mean, who knows how accurate those census numbers were. They might have just fluffed them up to make them look good. But, I mean, at the end of the day, it's a horrible situation that should never have happened because someone thought he knew better when clearly he didn't. Yeah. Um, let's talk about the aftermath from the Great Leap Forward. And this isn't the end of Mao's story. Mao Zedong rules for a lot longer after this or is in power in some way, shape or form. Um, at this time, though, as you could imagine, he lost the esteem of many of the other top um, sort of CCP party members. He was eventually, eventually um, forced to abandon um, the policy in 1962 and lost some of his political power to some of the other party leaders. Um, Mao, however, was supported pretty heavily by national um, propaganda and claimed that he was only partly to blame for the famine. Um, Mao stepped down as the president of the CCP on April uh, 27th of 1959, but he would still remain in his position as the chairman of the communist party. So look, I in reading this could never quite figure out who had the more power. And it just seemed to be based on the individual more than the title, Jimmy. Yeah. Seems very similar to, uh, to uh, the, the Russian situation at the moment where Putin's the president and he's the most powerful, but when he becomes prime minister, the prime minister will be the most powerful. So it seems like no matter where Mao is, he's just the most powerful, no matter what the title is. So um, pretty interesting. So essentially was in charge for uh, from 1949 to 1959. So he wreaked a lot of havoc in not really that long amount of time. Yeah. And he would wreak more like Mao would end up getting absolute power back, believe it or not. Um this came in the form of the Cultural Revolution um, that was launched in China in 1966. So at this time, you know, Mao's been out of the spotlight, but still probably pulling a lot of the strings in the party. Um, but here he wanted to really, um, you know, start to reassert his authority over China again and the Chinese Communist Party. Um, believing that current Chinese communist leaders were taken over the party and China itself was going in the wrong direction. Mao sort of played the hits again. He sort of did what got him up there in the first place. And he kind of started to rally up or sort of rev up the, um, the young and the peasantry um, through this period, Jimmy. Yeah. Look, you really would have thought these people would have learned by now what Mao was doing. Like, it didn't really work out for them the first time. So maybe like, let's not fall for it again. But clearly he was, he was very good at his job and he knew exactly, he knew exactly what to say to roll up these people to get them to do exactly what he wanted. Yeah. Mao like called on the nation's youth to purge the impure elements of just of Chinese society and to revise the revolutionary spirit that led them to victory in the civil war 20 years earlier um, and basically just kind of like inspired a bunch of division, a bunch of like infighting, a bunch of sort of civil conflict um, that really damaged China's economy and traditional culture. But it did make Mao 
the guy again. And Mao was back in full control at this point. And I tried to read about the Chinese Cultural Revolution so much and get a full handle on it because over 20 million people or up to, sorry, 20 million people again died as a result of this fighting that Mao had inspired. Um, And the best quote I found was um, in a Guardian article talking about this. And it says, it's bewildering complexity and absolute almost unfathomable brutality was such to this day historians struggle to make sense of everything that occurred during that period yeah it's really um it's 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 quite interesting because he's essentially in his time had over 80 million people die under his reign now whether that was through directly them being killed or being sent to camps or just from starvation he's had a super uh brutal reign in which he's basically convinced people to in a way murder each other and set each other up up for failure so therefore the blame isn't on him which i think is insane yeah um he would continue to like from this cultural revolution um be in charge again of China and really um, set the tone again until his um, eventual death about a decade later. Um, What we're going to get into now is Mao's really complicated legacy. Um, Mao Zedong was the figurehead of the Chinese Communist Party, whether he was officially or whether he was just pulling the strings in the background at certain points. And he really led by like a cult of personality. And I think through our revolutionary series, we're going to see a few people like this who um, just through them being them and being able to like rev up a population um, with, with skill. Um, this is something that Mao definitely seemed to have. In 1966, around the time of the Cultural Revolution, Mao actually released a book called The Little Red Book um, in Western world. Um, its official title was Quotations from Chairman Mao Zedong. And it contained about 200 quotes from him. And people were basically obligated to carry it around um, with them in like a pocket sized book. And it was basically mandatory for um, everybody remotely associated with the Chinese Communist Party. Yeah, that's uh, I have definitely heard of the book, but I didn't know that they were uh, forced to carry it around. But it's it's, uh, it's a fairly in- interesting uh, thing to be asked to do. I I would love to read. I'd love to read it actually, and just find out what some of the quotes were in there that they were forced to keep on the middle times. Yeah, that would be an interesting one to look at. Is find like the best quotes from that book. Um, over the years, Mao's image became displayed almost everywhere in China. It was present in homes, offices, shops. The phrase long live Chairman Mao for 10,000 years was commonly heard during the era. So like either people loved him, feared him or a bit of both. Like he was truly like, I've been to Vietnam and you see Ho Chi Minh all over the place. Like I assume it's like that where he's just like this beloved grandfather slash like completely feared dictator. Yeah, it's almost like even if you knew he was bad and you knew he did the wrong thing, you were still too afraid to say it based on the fact that probably most people did like him and you didn't want to be sent to like a camp or just outright murdered. 
Yeah, I'm going to get into some of the good he did for China. And I'm definitely not going to end on the good he did for China because I feel like that's the wrong tone. But he did do, like, China progressed in this period. Um, He was praised for driving out imperialism, like we talked about at the top of the episode. The fact that they had a monarchy in the 20th century is wild. Um, Having unified China after previous decades of civil war, check. Like, people liked that he did that. He's also accredited for um, having improved the status of women in China, um, improving literacy and education, improving life expectancy, the quality of education and healthcare improved during his period of rule. And China became an economic powerhouse. So, you know, the policies were crap, but he got them to a point where they became a powerful country. Their population grew from about 550 million to over 900 million during this during his rule and um, inspired another very controversial policy, Jimmy. Yeah, the old one child uh, one where you could only have one child and usually that one child was a boy. Um, And essentially they've actually had to say you need to have more children now because their population is aging and they need young people. Who would have thought that if you only can have one child for so long and you only keep boys that the population goes down. Interesting. Yeah, I saw recently three-child policy introduced. But yeah, yeah, Mao did such a good job of growing the population um, somehow, despite you know his policies killing so many, um, that they had to introduce a policy to reduce it. Um, that was not brought in under his rule, by the way. I'll just make that clear. He wasn't responsible for the one-child policy directly. Um, despite being considered so i talked about his improving the status for women i found this um you know a bit of an interesting story and just had to throw it in there somewhere um he was known as a supporter of women's rights but some documents released by the united states department in um 2008 showed that mao declared women to be a nonsense in 1973 um in a conversation with a top um us exec he was found to be joking that China is a very poor country. We don't have much. What we have in excess is women. Let them go to your place. They will create disasters. That way you can lessen our burdens. He offered the US 10 million women, Jimmy. Sorry, I just found that so ridiculous that, oh, I'm a feminist, but also do you want 10 million of our women just for free? Yeah, yeah. I'm starting to think that maybe everything good about Mao was maybe told by people who were forced to say it and that maybe Mao was just a terrible person. Yeah. So this was um, not put into public record at that place, but obviously it was recorded somewhere and found light in 2008. Um, so, yeah, Mao is not a great feminist. No. Um one of the most shocking things I found, and I don't know who the global times are, whether this is like a dodgy publication or not. Um, but in December, 2013, a poll from the state run global times. And I assume this is like probably a CCP controlled um, newspaper in China um, indicated that roughly 85% of their respondents to a poll surveyed that Mao um, that they felt that Mao's achievements outweighed his mistakes. I'm just surprised that they thought he made any, to be honest. I'm surprised <laughs> they used that word at all. 
So, I mean, they should have had a third option. What mistakes? That's right. Hey, look, again, it's, I think, I think we've realized that everything about Mao, you got to take with a grain of salt because through the fact that we didn't know about enough stats, that the, the data wasn't accurate, or just the lies that people told. I don't think we'll ever truly know the amount of people that actually died. I don't think we'll ever truly, truly know how horrible he was as a person, just because the truth will probably never, ever come out in terms of how all the accurate information that we would want to know. Yeah. Um, like everything, there's probably there's probably some good and bad in him as well. Like There probably were some good things he did, but my goodness, some of them were destructive. Um, he died in 1976, um, still the chairman, um, and he died of a heart attack, ending a very complicated um, reign. So let's wrap it up. Um, we've kind of talked about Chinese Revolution. We've talked about Mao Zedong predominantly and the Great Leap Forward. There's so much more could have gone over here. Um, his rise to power in more detail. There's so much about his relationship with the dude we might talk about later on, old mate uh, Joseph Stalin, um, because the USSR were pretty pivotal in um, bringing China up, Jimmy. Yeah, big big uh, Jojo there. Yeah, those two were BFFs in a weird way, I think. And um, yeah, look, Russia, the USSR had a huge part to play in the world as a communist nation. I mean, there's so much we could talk about in terms of the Vietnam War, the Cuban Missile Crisis, the Cold War. It's it's a big smelting pot of information that will take us weeks and weeks to go over, but um, we'll slowly m- move through it, hopefully. But yeah, the it, the uh, the whole thing with Mao and Stalin super interesting. I think actually towards the end of World War Two, Russia even attacked China for a period of time. Um, they've, they've yes, had... they did. Yeah, yeah. They were um, enemies and then friends, and yeah. then I think probably enemies again. Yeah, they've 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 had a super. Uh, they kind of like uh, the best of friends, the worst of enemies type situation. I think so. Um, yeah, and we'll talk about Stalin soon. I I I, I would imagine very. It'd be soon. pretty weird to do a history podcast and not mention that guy at some point. Um, through this period, you know, we could have talked more about the Cultural Revolution if I kind of understood it completely, um, like many historians don't. Um, they were involved in a lot of other conflicts, both internally and with neighbouring countries. And um, also, like, Mao has so much poetry and a very interesting personal life as well. So if you're interested, inspired by this podcast, I'm not going to spend another 20 minutes talking about his personal life, but um, go take the time. Um, you know, I think he had a pretty open marriage and stuff like that. Like very interesting stuff going on. Um, Mao, Mao used his, um, his status in, in many ways for his benefit. And we, and we haven't even touched on, uh, the Dalai Lama and what he did there either. Yeah. So final thoughts, Jimmy, um, um, look, I think super interesting podcast. I've really enjoyed delving into the world of Mao and what he did did for and what did he did to China. Um, like you said, I think we've really only uh, touched the surface of the person he was, but I think we'd be talking for another three hours if we really wanted to go uh, that deep into who he was. But at the end of the day, look, he did do some good things for China in terms of bringing them out of the feudal age and, and he did unite China, but I think you can't look past the fact that in his time, around 80 million people died, whether it was directly or indirectly because of the choices he made. 
Yeah, and like a pretty questionable Chinese Communist Party remains today. And um, I'm sorry if we have some new Chinese listeners somehow, um, and you're sympathetic to the to the party. Um, we're not gonna we're 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 neutral. We're Switzerland at the moment. Um, so just enjoy the podcast. Go back and listen to some of our other episodes. They're great. Um, I think um, in terms of this story, it nearly broke my brain to like make it into something that was like a Jimmy D and Mr. B style synthesized story. Cause it's massive, but I've enjoyed the challenge of doing that here today. Yeah, no, it's been great. I've loved doing it and I've loved uh, delving into a part of history that I wasn't really an expert in. So um, on that note, I've been Jimmy D and I'm Mr. B stay curious, stay cheeky.